This week on the Today Podcast, Relentless Courage with Michael Sugru. You know, I love the job. It was literally my dream and my plan someday was literally to be chief of police somewhere. I was involved in a very tragic incident. That incident really forever changed my path, my career, my life. Suddenly he comes up over his head with a knife in a stabbing position, starts coming towards us. I shoot, you don't know if they're dead, if they're bleeding out, but we gotta get to them. Immediately after that, the family actually filed a federal lawsuit. It's trauma stacked on top of trauma. To be a defendant in a courtroom when you're a police officer, that did the right thing and saved lives, and you're being treated like a criminal. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to episode 336 of the 108 podcast Relentless Courage with retired sergeant turned author. Listen, folks, we've got an amazing show for you today, but before we get into it, I want to ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on the streaming platform of your choosing, and share the show with anyone that you think might benefit from it. I know it sounds like a minor thing, and I know I kind of harp on it, but it helps the show be seen by more people that way, so please take 30 seconds and support the show that way. Speaking of those that support the show... Folks, I want to tell you about Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. At Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, they believe training is a lifestyle. Their goal is to provide everything a police officer needs to not only become proficient in their control and defense skills, but also achieve all the physical and mental health benefits Jiu-Jitsu has to offer. And that's why they came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It's the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and monthly nutrition plans. Through the app, you also have 24-7 access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. Jason is a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu and an 11-year law enforcement veteran. So go check out the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app in the App Store of your choosing, available on iPhone and Android. What's going on, guys? Thanks for checking out today's show today is an important one. Today we have a first-hand account of what happens when post-traumatic stress goes untreated. Well, guess what? Our guest today, Michael Sugru, is not the first of these stories that we've had on this season, and he's not going to be the last, but he, just like the others, is very important, so hopefully the different perspectives will uh, will resonate with you. And this one's actually coming from a sergeant's perspective. A lot of the ones we've had so far have been from those, you know, line officers, but guess what? It doesn't matter if you have a slick sleeve, some chevrons, stars, bars, whatever, Traumatic incidents will impact you no matter what. A few weeks ago, I had on Dr. Delery, and I spoke about the symptoms of the clinical diagnosis of PTSD. So you can go ahead and go back to listen to that to get an idea. But I think an important understanding is that the traumatic experience is something that disturbs your understanding of what is right and what is safe. The biggest one is coming toe-to-toe with your own or others' mortality. So whether you're in a gun battle or you witness a loved one die, that imprint on your life is significant. Now, sometimes that imprint can be significant, but you can work through it, and sometimes you can't. And when you can't, that's where PTSD or PTSI comes from. Now, clinically, it is PTSD, but I use PTSI or PTSE uh, for injury or event uh, when I speak about it because I feel I, because it's true. The word disorder or just those four words PTSD have such a stigma attached to it that I, you know, I don't want 
people to feel stigmatized. I don't want to feel like I'm calling them out or anything like that. And we're all in this together. I feel like anyone in our line of work, first responder, military, um, even in the medical field, suffers to it uh, from it on some kind of variant scale. And I was going to say a spectrum, as my buddy Josh, um, he was on a couple times, uh, he says that it's almost like a spectrum, but even the word spectrum has a stigma to it. And it's just these words, man. It, it, we can't let the words get past the... Uh, importance of what we're saying if that makes sense we're attributing the wrong meaning to these words and i think that's uh where i want to go so again the clinical diagnosis is ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder but i believe it should be called post-traumatic stress injury and uh or a post-traumatic stress event it all depends on how it affects you now that being said, without taking care of yourself, that's where disasters going to lurk. And that's why all season, uh, while talking about what trauma is and kind of the, the dark side of it, I've also spent a lot of time talking about the positive side and how we can get healthy coping mechanisms for that. So we've talked about fitness. We've talked about nutrition. We've talked about uh, jujitsu. We've talked about a million different things, discipline, uh, to kind of give you tools necessary to help you get through that. Because, you know, something I've realized a lot recently is like when you're taking care of your body, uh, when your brain is not doing so well, uh, it helps. Now, it's not a cure-all. It's not going to just make everything better. It's not going to make the bad thing go away. But it's going to give you more tools in your tool belt. We always talk about that in law enforcement and first responder life. going to give you more tools in your tool belt to get through it and, and kind of give you those healthy outlets so that way you don't go to the bottle. You don't go to gambling or drugs or whatever it might be. Um, so it all ties in together and, and everyone that's been listening from day one, uh, but definitely day one through season three, um, knows that that's what we've been pushing. That's what I've been pushing. So uh, it all goes together. So again, we're trying to find ways to help support each other. And something that I've really learned a lot about recently is the importance and the significance of support groups. Now, uh, I talked about this a few weeks ago about support groups. And, you know, we had Phil Klein on. He talked about peer support groups and things like that. But I want to keep telling you guys about this. Now, typically when I talk about different organizations, that's typically at the end of the show. And while I believe that everyone that does listen listens throughout the entirety of the show, I really hope I got your attention right now in the beginning of the show before my guest. And I want to talk about uh, two organizations that I'm a huge fan of. They they really drive home this whole peer support model, and they're very good. Actually, I've got three. I've got three for you. Uh, two that I know about that I've interacted with a lot recently, and then a new one that I haven't really read into a lot, but my guest today brings it up, so I want to just kind of mention it. And uh, again, I haven't, I haven't vetted that one, but he talks about it, and I believe, I'm sure it's a good organization. I just don't have a lot of information about it just yet. So that being said, I first want to tell you about Project Refit. Project Refit through a series of different ventures is helping bring first responders and the military together and to give them the support they need. They host retreats, fundraisers, and they bring help to those that need help. They bring it all together. Um, I talked about it a few months ago, but I went on one of their retreats in the Poconos in the in Pennsylvania, and it was absolutely amazing. Uh, they did everything necessary to bring me from Florida up there. Uh, they even invited me for, I think, the end of this month to go out to Colorado for a retreat. Can't do that with, with work and life and stuff, but amazing opportunity. The guy that runs it, James, is is an amazing friend to those that serve, and he's really doing something very, very 
special. They also do bi-weekly Zoom meetings, and that acts as a virtual support group and brings like-minded individuals together. They do it on Mondays and Fridays. Um, then they also are bringing together something called fire team development. Refit fire teams are groups of five to six veterans, first responders, and civilians that come together and they basically, they do retreats, they do support. Um, if you're interested in any of this, go check out projectrefit.us. Um, if you're looking into forming a fire team, you know, James will help you out with that. They're also on Instagram at project refit. Uh, it's a great organization. Uh, I've been in on a couple of their Zoom calls, you know, and, the, and I'm on the, the text thread with the guys that I was on the retreat with. It was, it was really a special situation, so definitely want to um, plug them. Another group that we've had many members on the show at this point is Reps for Responders. I've talked to them or talked about them quite a bit. Um, you all know about them. You should if you've listened. Uh, we've had Frank, Nick, uh, Jay and also Aaron Loman works a lot with them as well. They have their own responder talks or their their version of uh, peer support every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you got to show that you're a first responder, either current or former. Uh, but they get you in, and then you can listen to the talk from around the country. When uh, when I gave my talk with them a few weeks ago, there were guys there from Texas and and out west and things like that. So very special. But if you are in the Northeast, you can take part in all their different events. They're based out of New York and New Jersey, but they they do events up there. Um, they've done the beefsteak dinner. They've done a fit for duty fitness challenge, basically a giant uh, CrossFit workout. It, was, it, was, it looked amazing. I wish I could go there. They also had a tattoo event. Really special individuals over there do, doing a great job, doing the Lord's work. I really wish it was nationwide. But you can reach out to them. You can attend their talks. You can check them out on IG, which is Reps for Responders, or you can visit their website, repsforresponders.org. And finally, a group, like I said, I just learned about based on this conversation today. They're out west. They're called First Responder Support Network. They offer training, outreach, and retreats, just like the two that I just talked about. Their website has a bunch of information and resources. Like I said, I'm still learning about them. So um, I'm just going to give you their website. You can guys can go check them out. And uh, I'm going to get more information about them in the near future. But they are frsn.org. Now, guys, this is not an all-inclusive list. I could go on and on and on. Uh, if you listen to previous episodes, I've had so many different representatives from different organizations on doing amazing things. Uh, there are plenty out there. The most important thing that I can tell you is not to let your trauma stick with you. Like I said a few weeks ago with the Dr. D episode, trauma requires an audience. Don't heal alone. No man, no person is an island. Uh, no matter how alone or weak you may feel, you are not actually alone reach out to people there are first responders out there that will help you there are civilians there's there's a bunch of amazing people out there just um reach out so if you don't know where to turn message me and i will find you resources but there are plenty out there as well another thing i really want to talk about really quick we're going to do a full episode about this next week or i'm sorry next year uh in season four but, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they don't know who they can talk to, especially locally. Um, you know, friendship as an adult is a very weird concept. And especially making friends as an adult 
is a very weird concept and kind of difficult. So especially in this line of work in this day and age, you know, you tell someone you're a cop and they more or less may shy away from you. And that's that's kind of a daunting task as well, because rejection just is terrible. So we're going to we're going to focus on that. But if you want like minded individuals, you may find friends in these different support groups. Like I said, support groups, the idea of support groups, it really is interesting to me. Uh, I'm, you know what? I wasn't going to bring this up, but why not? I just found this show on Amazon prime. It stars the guy, Ron Livingston, the guy from office space, and it's called louder milk. And it's a guy, he's a recovering alcoholic. He runs group therapy sessions for like alcoholics anonymous and, and Narconon. And it's, it's a good show. It's funny. It's dramatic, but it, it's a good time. But AA has been working for so many years, you know, and you get sponsors and these guys are the people that you can trust and rely on and they're going to bounce back and forth and like you help them, they help you, that kind of thing. And that's what these first responders support groups are too. I went to a class, it was more of a presentation at this retreat in my neck of the woods, which I shouted out a couple months ago right after I went. And it was mostly chiefs and sheriffs and uh, kind of high-ranking officials. I don't really know how I got it, and I must have snuck in the back door or something. But anyway, I went to it, and a lot of what they were saying is that first responders want to talk. They want to be part of these support groups, but it's a big trust thing. And, you know, I, I immediately thought, like, man, wouldn't it be great if just like they have Narcotics Anonymous, Gambling Anonymous, like whatever Anonymous... Wouldn't it be great if you could have a first responder group like that? And then, you know, I looked into reps and project refit and stuff. I was like, oh, they do have stuff like that. So look into these things. There might even be stuff local to you. Take a look, because once you find that, like if you get a sponsor, like, hey, it doesn't have to be to the extent of having a a post-traumatic stress event, but it could be you're just having a bad day and you need to talk to someone that gets it. That's what these things are for. So if you could have your battle buddy, why not? But I think the the bottom line of what I'm explaining right now is that you cannot wait for your admin to help you. You can't wait for them to develop a program. Uh, even if there is a SISM team or a peer support team at your department, it may not be good. It may not be vetted. It may not make sense. These organizations are good. They have the training. They have the experience. And I've just learned about... Uh, an organization called the Wounded Blue, and I talked about this other organization a few weeks ago called Blue Line Support. All these different organizations are out there. They will put you in contact with law enforcement officers that have similar experiences with you immediately, and that's important. So don't wait for someone to help you. You have to be your own advocate, your own cheerleader. Speak up, speak out, and save yourself, guys. This That's what is most important for me to get across today. That's something that Michael's going to talk about in our interview here in just a moment. He realized that things were not going good for him. He realized that he had to be his advocate. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's an amazing story. It's a harrowing story. I can't say that apparently, but it hits way too close to home here. Uh, You guys are going to enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. Retired police sergeant from California, Michael Sugru. Relentless Courage here on the 10-8 Podcast. All right, Michael Sugru. He is in 
and we are ready to talk. We've got a we've got a big conversation ahead of you. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. How about you? I am doing good. I am doing good. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I always seem to schedule these right after my last day of working, so I'm always a you know, battling the the post night shift sleepiness and all that stuff. But uh, luckily, got some sleep and, and we're ready to rock and roll. So I appreciate your time today. Uh, look forward to this conversation with you. Awesome. Well, I definitely don't miss those graveyard shifts. <laughs> I did plenty of those in my time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's I I was a when I was in my tw- early twenties before I got into law enforcement and all of that. I kind of wound up on night shifts a lot. I worked a newspaper delivery job. I worked a couple things overnight and I prefer it. Like for some reason, I just kind of, it works for me. So it carried through to my law enforcement career now in dispatch. But I think I've kind of reached the point where I'm like, you know what? The sun. I like the sun. I want to see more of the sun. <laughs> no, no doubt. I, I mean, I miss the hunting. So you're right about graveyards. Like as far as being a cop, there is not a better shift because you're out there hunting, going in progress stuff. You're not catching all the cold paperwork mm-hmm. and lame slow calls. So it's just the other end when you're off and you're trying to have a normal social life and everything else. That's when it has an effect. Right, right. Absolutely. I remember like during the winter time, I work six to six. So by the time I get to work, the sun's down. And by the time I get out of work, the sun still hasn't come up yet. One day I was off and I, you know my sleep schedule when I'm off is kind of more human i guess you could say and i went outside and the sun hit me and i felt like instant rejuvenation like holy crap like you know like they talk about it in all those like podcasts like oh get your daily sun and everything and i'm just always like whatever but i did i'm like wow i feel so much better and you know we're not meant to live in darkness you know a lot of people i guess kind of um prefer nights of course like we were saying but you know i think the more sun you get and the more exposure to to normalcy uh, it's good for your body. It's good for your mind, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's critical for mental health, physical health, everything. Yeah, but I definitely, uh, you know, when I was working nights on the road, you're right. It's a totally different beast out there. You're not dealing with all the shopliftings and the barking dog complaints and all. You know, you're, the chances of you being involved in a serious call, you know, the call volume in a lot of places, I think, at night shift are down. You know, they're not usually as busy, but the severity of the calls that come in are definitely uh, a lot higher. Absolutely. And the proactivity, which I love. Mm -hmm. I was super proactive, and that's definitely much higher on the graveyard shifts. Yeah, I get get so frustrated. So, you know, I I left the road dealing with my own issues with trauma and and grief and things like that. And I, I went to dispatch. So... You know, and I went to a di- to dispatch to a new agency, so like totally a, a new experience for me. And I get frustrated sitting in the in the comm center and watching what my officers do on a nightly basis. And I'm like, they haven't run a single traffic stop tonight. What's going on? And then like, you know, the day day passes, and then you find out, oh, we had a lot of burglaries that day, or you know, overnight. I was like, because they didn't do anything. They did patrol checks, and I'm like. You can sit in a parking lot or you can sit at an intersection in a neighborhood and that's great. But if you're not trolling around, like literally patrol, trolling around with, you know, your lights off and just looking for things that go bump in the night. Like, what are you even doing on night shift, man? Oh, I agree. I actually, the dispatchers hated me because I would do 20 to 30 stops a night. I'm talking ped stops, bike Mm -hmm. stops, car stops. And let me tell you what, if the driver or the turd lived in another county or another city at some time, I was having dispatch check probation in every single county they ever set foot in. Mm-hmm. So 
the dispatchers had a statewide map that would put a pin in it when I had a different county. So yeah, they, they didn't like me too much when it came to that. You know, so I never really took into account what my dispatchers had to go through with me on the road because I was, I liked being proactive. I also, you know, there were days where I'm just like, you know what, today's just going to be a, you know, a loaf day. I'm not going to do anything. But when I was out there, like I remember uh, the weekend before Christmas one year, me and my squad, uh, we were, I, we were bored. It was December. We were on a a beach town, you know, so not a lot of people were out and about. I was like, let's do a move over op. So in Florida, you, you stay on the side of the road with your lights on cars need to move over or they need to slow down if they're not able to move over. And I was like, everybody that doesn't move over, we're going to stop them. I was like, we don't, and I was in no supervisory uh, capacity, but I was like, well, let's stop them. We don't have to write tickets or anything, but let's see what happens. Right. And in that weekend, that three day period, we wrote, well, we made over a hundred contacts. So I could only imagine that my, you know, dispatchers did not have a great time about it. But um, now knowing it on the other side, it's like, I, it's weird because sometimes when the night's dragging, you're like, do something like give, give me something to do. So it kind of, it, the only time I ever in dispatch get frustrated when guys are being proactive is when we're slamming with calls and they really think they need to stop that person that just rolled the stop bar. Like it could have probably waited this time, you know, but it is what it is. Yeah. But let's be honest. When that cop sees that pending 261 <laughs> or cold fraud yeah, and they see a car in front of them, it's like, Oh, which one do I want to do? Right. So- oh yeah, absolutely. I had uh, I remember one point we were, I was on the road. I was pretty new and my zone partner and I were dispatched to a domestic, but it was like baby mom and drama domestic type thing. And I get there cause I'm brand new. So I don't really know the tricks of the trade of like, Oh look, <laughs> that needs to be addressed instead. And I get there and I hear him pulling a car stop. I was like, you mother. Like I, I realized then what, uh, what could be done and what should be done. Um, but it is what it is. That's something that comes with time. I think. Uh, absolutely. So uh, your story is, is very, very interesting. It's very, very much in line with a lot of things that I talk about and have talked about over this past year and a half. Um, but before we go into it, let's go ahead and introduce you to the listenership. Uh, go ahead. Tell us who you are, what you do, where you're from, and then we'll just kind of go from there. So my name is Michael Sugru. I'm originally from the Bay Area in Northern California. Um, I've actually lived all over the world. So my interest in law enforcement literally started eight years old. Uh, My stepfather who raised me was in law enforcement. And so I became a police volunteer, very young, a police explorer. And my original plan was going to federal law enforcement. And so I knew I had to get my degree, have some kind of experience outside of that. So I looked into the Air Force. I got a full scholarship through the ROTC program, majored in criminal justice at Sacramento State in California, graduated with a BS in 98. And immediately I was commissioned as a lieutenant in the United States Air Force. And I got security forces, which is basically military police, anti-terrorism, force protection, air-based ground defense, nuclear security, a bunch of whole cool stuff. And my plan was just to do four years, get out and go feds. But a lot of things happened. First off, when I was in the military, I ended up working with different federal agencies. And I quickly learned that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to mm-hmm. be. And I said, you know what? That's not really what I want to do. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look more towards civilian law enforcement. And, but, but I still got this commitment. And I ended up getting offered an assignment in Germany. And I, I wasn't going to turn that down. So that actually extended my time. And then 9-11 happened while I was over there. A couple months later, I'm in the Middle East. And eventually, I'm down in South America doing all kinds of stuff. 
Um, came back to California in 2004, and I was a captain, and I ended up applying to a bunch of different agencies back here in Northern California. Ended up getting multiple offers, and I ended up going with Walnut Creek Police Department, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's probably about 20 minutes outside San Francisco. And so I left the Air Force honorably in 04 as a captain, and that's where I started my civilian career. And, you know, went through the academy. I was just a regular beat officer for like a year and a half. Quickly, I was made FTO, field training officer. A couple years after that, detective. And I was assigned undercover to a state drug task force. Mm -hmm. So basically like the state DEA. And that was like my dream job, my dream assignment. And I wanted to do that forever. But then a whole bunch of things happened. And it turns out that my boss, who worked for the state DEA, he was actually selling our evidence on the side. We didn't know about it. And uh, we ended up being investigated. And thank God none of us were involved. But it turns out our boss, who ended up in federal prison, was doing all kinds of shady stuff. And so I ended up getting brought back to my agency doing in-house investigations, which wasn't nearly as exciting. <laughs> right. And I don't know if it was because of the FaceTime or because I was back around. I ended up getting promoted to sergeant very early on. So about eight years on, I got promoted to sergeant. I was running patrol teams on the street. And I was also a PIO, um, an EVOC or emergency tactics driver instructor, honor guard, all kinds of different things. Um, but, you know, I love the job. It was literally my dream and my plan someday was literally to be chief of police somewhere. And to kind of go back about a couple months after I got promoted, it was my second solo shift as a patrol sergeant. I was involved in a very tragic incident. And that incident really forever changed my path, my career, my life. And it put me where I'm at today, which is I'm now on the other side of post-traumatic stress injury recovery. Mm -hmm. And I'm now speaking across the nation and we just wrote a book to help smash the stigma when it comes to, you know, talking about mental health or feelings or emotions or, or things like that when it comes to all first responders. Yeah. So, I mean, your, your story is very expansive, definitely your civilian side of life or your, your civilian police kind of side of life uh, definitely resonates with me, especially when I first started, um, I did not have military experience or anything like that, but uh, my dad was was a 26 year old or 26 year police veteran, uh, retired as a sergeant in the mid 90s. And policing was never what I wanted to do. It was always on the radar. And then, you know, I, I kind of floated the idea by my dad and he was like, oh, no, don't do it. You know, kind of same thing. Like if I had a son, I'd say the same thing. And eventually I got into it and fell in love with it. And I said the same thing. Oh, man, I could totally be chief one day. And then as my career went on, that that eagerness kind of went back. Like, okay, maybe one day I'll be captain. You know what? Nothing higher than lieutenant. Listen, if I make sergeant, if I make the next day, I'll be happy. You know, that's kind of the progression. And, you know, your military experience, obviously, very, very important as well. But let's go ahead and talk about this first significant incident that you mentioned when you were, were brand new on the, on the road as a sergeant, um, which I... But the first thing, the first thing I want to talk about is like when you are a patrol officer, right? You're just boots on the ground, starting level police officer. If you're involved in something significant, that's significant. That's going to affect you a lot. But you're if you're in a supervisory position and you're involved in something traumatic, or if your shift is involved in something traumatic or significant, that's 
kind of playing in a different field because not only do you have to worry about yourself and your safety, but now you have a team of people underneath you that you have to work for as well, right? Well, yeah, and in my incident, I was actually first on scene mm. and I was the most involved in the entire incident. But like you said, when this happened, I was the only on-duty supervisor for the entire city. So I was the acting watch commander as well. Mm. So it, it was like I had to start waking people up and have dispatch start waking people up above me because I had to contain the scene and yet I'm still responsible for the rest of the city. Yeah, that that's wild. You know, and, and I get on, like we were saying, when I was, when I'm in dispatch, I kind of look at everything from like a holier than thou bird's eye view of, of what's going on on patrol because I'm familiar with how the job works, obviously. And the same thing, if our, if we have one patrol supervisor on and he kind of gets flustered, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of, joke with him or whatever but it's true if something goes wrong um that's a bad day especially if you're the only one there to assist so i i definitely understand and you know while i tongue-in-cheek tease our supervisor i definitely understand that there's a lot on the line should something go wrong so in your situation what what exactly happened so basically it was, like i said it was my second solo shift i was working the graveyard shift like we talked about at the beginning of this interview mm-hmm. and Back then it was 410, so it started at 930 at night and ended at 730 in the morning. Our shift actually started the day after Christmas, so it started on December 26. And so I always associate, unfortunately, Christmas with this horrific event. And I remember at that point, you know, my life was perfect. I was happily married, beautiful daughter, just bought my dream house five months earlier, and my career was off the charts. I mean, literally, I was getting every assignment and promotion that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it was literally sky's the limit. And I had been cut loose after a little informal training program. And second solo shift, it's our Friday too. So like, we're all in a good mood. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm going to be off for a few days. So I get to work. Shift starts out fairly slow. There is an overlapping team, a swing shift team and a lieutenant. And I'm not going to lie, I went out there and did some traffic stops. I mean, I was the day after Christmas I wrote tickets. I back then I called it touching lives, and so uh, reach out the, and touch somebody, the, right? And I was the only one doing stops that night. But after that, it was literally just like crickets on the radio because mm-hmm. you know it's the holiday, and typically around the holiday, it's minimum staffing. You know, people are tired, nothing's going on. People are with their families, and so we're just cruising through the shift. I end up grabbing some code or some dinner with one of my officers in the next city over, and then about three a.m. I go to this dark parking lot to start reviewing reports because that's one of my responsibilities Mm -hmm. and i'm like four hours from going home and suddenly the dispatcher and at this time it was the only dispatcher on duty so this dispatcher was taking calls handling the radio everything Mm -hmm. and so i mean horrific experience for her and so she gets on the air real frantic her voice like i've never heard before she puts out the address on creekside drive and she says that there's a woman inside a condo and a man armed with a knife. And so we all just start rolling. I mean, I just literally throw the binder up to the side, start blowing through their lights. There's no traffic on the streets. I hear the other units answering up. And I know this area, it's literally like a one-lane street that dead ends. And it's very high-dense residential. So lots of condos, lots of apartments. And I know the general area, but I don't know like the layout of each complex mm-hmm. or each condo. And so... About halfway there, the dispatcher again, very frantic. She gets on and says, "Unit units, now the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded inside the bedroom." And I was I was confused, and I so I asked for clarification on the radio, and I said, "Is the boyfriend the one with the knife, or is there a third subject with the knife?" 
And she quickly clarified, said, no, there's a third subject with a knife. And so at this point, I mean, this is a highly unusual call. And like all these thoughts are racing through my head. And again, I'm the supervisor, but I'm trying to get there as quick as I can. Adrenaline is just pumping. I end up getting on the street, pull up right in front of this very large complex. And it's basically a bunch of two-story attached condominiums on all sides with like a big courtyard in the middle. And as I pull up in front, as I start to get out of my car, the dispatcher starts screaming. She's like, units, units, there's a struggle, there's a struggle. And then she loses all contact. The phone line inside the residence goes dead. Mm -hmm. And thank God, at that same time, one of my officers pulls up right behind me. And as we get out, we can hear blood-curling screams from a female coming from the distance. And again, we don't know where this unit is, but we just start running towards these screams. And I know I've got more officers coming, it's just her and I, but we got to get there. And so we start running. Eventually, we have to crawl underneath this outside stairwell, and we get into this open courtyard, and we find the unit, and it goes dead silent. So from these blood-curling screams, just eerie dead silence. I mean, nobody outside. I don't hear anything else. We post up. We announce ourselves. No response. I eventually try kicking open the front door. It doesn't work. My partner motions over and there's a huge window, a louvered window the size of a door, which is completely shattered inside to the condominium. And so we post up on the window both sides. And now again, guns are out. We're announcing ourselves, please, please come out, show us your hands. Nothing. And so we look at each other and we just go in because we know that couple's in there. We got to get to them. It brings us right into this kitchen area. And you can see through like a cutout that there's like a family room and a dining room. So as soon as we exit the kitchen, she goes right, and that puts her at the bottom of a stairwell, and also the front door is right behind her. Mm-hmm. I go left, and I clear that family room, dining room area. I don't find anybody. I don't find anything out of order. I mean, obviously, the kitchen was a disaster, but nothing unusual in those other two rooms. So I immediately post back up at the bottom of the stairwell with her. And so now we're shoulder to shoulder. She's to my right. To her right is a solid wall that goes up, and we can see there's some kind of opening at the top of the stairwell to the left. So we don't know if it's a hallway, a bedroom, a landing, our guns are out, we're announcing ourselves. And this all happens very quickly, but moments later, a male subject partially comes out. We can't see the entire right side of his body. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open, glazed over, just staring straight through us. And literally, we're like, show us your hands, show us your hands. And I don't see any reaction. I don't remember any facial expression, no body movement, no eyes blinking, just staring straight through us. And moments later, you know, two more officers make their way inside the condo. One gets the taser, as I instruct them to. They get right behind myself and that first officer. The fourth officer goes perpendicular to the stairwell. And now the moments later, the male comes out and my partner yells, he's got a knife, he's got a knife. And in his right hand, he was clinching a full-size butcher knife or chef's knife, a very large knife. Mm -hmm. And so now we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. No reaction whatsoever again, nothing. Suddenly he comes up over his head with a knife in a stabbing position, starts coming towards us. I shoot, other officers shoot. He's now at the bottom of the stairs. I don't know if I've hit him. I don't know if anybody else has hit him. I don't see any injuries. I don't see any blood. Two of the officers retreat to a nearby room. The guy that had the taser ended up missing because one of the prongs went up to the overhang of the mm-hmm. ceiling. And so he has his gun out. We're literally just a few feet away from this guy on the ground. He's still clenching this butcher knife. 
and we know he's between us and the couple upstairs. We don't know if they're dead, if they're bleeding out, but we got to get to them. And so we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he starts coming back up with his knife in his hand. And there's no, no nice way to say it, but we, sh- you know, we killed him. We, we had to shoot him instantly right there, right in front of us. And his wounds were absolutely devastated. I mean, his entire eye was gone, mm-hmm. just blood, blood everywhere. And as soon as we checked his vitals, there were none. We already had medical staging. We had dispatch send him in. I had the other two officers go upstairs and they checked on the couple. Thank God we got there. And we did because that subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door with this large knife. And that poor couple was physically barricading their bodies against this door, trying to prevent him from coming in and killing mm. them. Wow. That's, that's insane. So, so you, they, they ended up surviving that the, the couple. Thank God. Yeah. They actually physically were unharmed. Wow. That- uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing. It's a miracle. But I know had we not gotten there, we did. If we would have been there any longer, would have hesitated. I have no doubt he would have made his way through that door and would have stabbed them both to death. Right. It's almost like a shining, like, here's Johnny kind of thing, the way he's kind of going through the door. It's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like, you know, and, and to have somebody not react when you have your gun mm-hmm. pointed right at them, telling them if you don't drop the knife, you're going to shoot them. And have no reaction. I mean, I pulled out my gun hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. I'd almost shot some other people. I, I'd never shot anybody at that point. But again, to have no reaction. And so to this day, we don't know if it was some kind of mental snap. He had no history of mental illness. We don't know if it was drug-induced psychosis. Right. Um, his roommate said that he'd used ecstasy or MDA in the past. But in his blood, all they found was THC. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if there was like other designer drugs on board. But... That's also what makes it so difficult is that up until that night, that person that tried to kill us was a good person. And we don't know what made him snap. Right, right. And, and the family wanted answers. So immediately after that, the family actually filed a federal lawsuit. And we ended up enduring a four-year federal lawsuit, even though we saved this couple and saved ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, had, we ended up as defendants in San Francisco in federal court one of the worst places you can imagine to be a cop mm-hmm. on federal trial. Why did they go federal as opposed to going to like a local lawsuit or something like that? I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, I, I can't speak to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, that's, I mean, that's like a big jump to go from a, you know, city situation and then they jump all the way to the feds. Well, that's, that's wild. We had uh, where I used to work. I wasn't involved in this, this was before my time, but one of my would be sergeants, uh, two of them actually responded to a domestic and the boyfriend was st- uh, threatening to stab the girlfriend. And literally you can see on the body camera, the, the officers walk in, he's got the knife, like po- like on her chest. And you see, if you look close enough, you can see the knife, like start to bend as he's pushing it into her chest. They shoot him, uh, kill him. But while they're doing that, cause it was a hostage situation. One of the bullets grazed the victim. Um, so caused her some, um, some wound it wasn't they she didn't get shot it was it was uh you know just like a grazing um so they go they apprehend the suspect after he's downed she's screaming why did you kill him why like lady you just had a knife to your chest what but again she ended up suing the police department because she got hit with a bullet when they were trying to save her life so it's remarkable hearing that it happens all over you know you're doing something good you're trying to save people and then obviously the family of the of the decedent suing you know it's it, it kind of it always goes back to my mind of like no one especially like a criminal element 
doesn't matter if it's a first time committing, whatever, has a hard time taking responsibility for their actions, especially family. And you kind of wonder, like, is that how we got to this point? Was that what led up to this? So it's just it's crazy. And I've, I've heard from many officers, you know, that they've gotten sued or, you know, because they had to use force. They, they had to be sued. And it's like I didn't just like show up on a Tuesday and decide, hey, I'm going to go shoot this guy like. Their actions led to my actions. So it's ridiculous. So a f- so to go back to your story, so it was a four-year lawsuit process? Correct, yeah. We ended up actually in federal court. I was defending. It went to trial. There was a two-week trial that went in September of 2016. And the judge was Judge Breyer. He's actually the brother of the Supreme Court justice that just retired. Mm. And so full jury. Um, and what I didn't mention is that the guy that tried to kill me and kill that couple, he had an identical twin brother. Mm. So these nightmares that I had up to this point for four years, this face that I couldn't get out of my mind that tried to kill me was literally sitting feet behind me in the same courtroom. That's wild. And, you know, when you were telling the story, the amount of detail and the fact of how vivid to this day, you know, we're what, 11 years after the fact or it's going to be 11 years after the fact that you're still able to describe it in such great detail shows that the imprint and impression that it had on your life is so significant. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like, I feel like people are going to be like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. But like a lot of people don't understand that. Like when you can literally remember the face of someone who was actively trying to kill you, like that doesn't go away. And now you're saying that that exact face is sitting right behind you. Like that's, I mean, that's got to be a mental drain on you on top of the mental drain that you're already having, having gone through the incident, now sitting trial for that incident. And I mean, that's that's wild. Yeah, literally, it's indescribable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's trauma stacked on top of trauma is, is what it is. And, you know, not to mention just the identical same person, but, you know, the person that tried to kill me or the man that I killed, his family was there. So his mm-hmm. parents, his step parents, his grandparents. And so, you know on the breaks from the courtroom walking down the same hallway and they're mumbling under their breath that we're murderers and killers and giving us the death stare, you know, that feeling is, it's really hard to put into words on how that feels. I mean, it's unimaginable. And to be a defendant in a courtroom when you're a police officer that did the right thing and saved lives Mm -hmm. and you're being treated like a criminal. Yeah. And, and like, there's a couple things with that. So the first thing is I always think about, Fast forward to a few years ago where, you know, we had all those officer uses of forces that were coming under fire. And when there's a shooting, when there's an officer down, uh, the media or I don't even want to say media, but the the naysayers will go, well, that's what they signed up for. First off, no, that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for the 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 chance that this would happen. But I didn't sign up to do that, to either be in a shooting, get shot at anything. I didn't sign up for any of that. And. On, on the other side, and you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but since you're in the military, you can you can vouch for it. When you're in the military, just showing like the the severity of of trauma in in law enforcement, not severity, but just the difference, the complexity of it. When you're when you're in theater, when you're out um, with the military, if you get involved in something, it's there, right? First off, you're never going to meet that person's family. You're never going to meet. As far as I know, aside from anything egregious, you're not going to sit trial for that, whatever. Um, that's part of the task. That's part of the mission. You come to the United States and you come to work law enforcement. Um, first off, 
you could end up getting in a shooting with someone you know, right? Like there's there was plenty of times where I almost got into a fatal use of force with someone I knew. Like I interacted with that person on a daily basis. They had a, a snap and you know it it came to something terrible or almost did. So you have that, right? Um, you could always go back to that community. Like you're not gonna go, if you're in uh, in Iraq, you're not gonna go back to Iraq on a on a Tuesday to go get your groceries, right? But you could go to the city you work in and go get groceries, you know. So like it's always there. It's always reminding you of things that happened, things that could have happened, and now literally sitting trial and having to walk the same corridor. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know how it would have worked, but essentially, you're face to face with the real life aspect of things. Like I feel like that's a side of things that people don't understand with law enforcement and especially law enforcement involved uh, incidents is just how real it is. Like, again, you're, you're face to face with their family when that is kind of hard to put into words. Yeah. I'll even take that a step further. You know, obviously I served in the military and in law enforcement. And so, and here's the other ironic thing is that, the general public widely accepts that some of our military members, you know, they go to, they go to hostile zones, they may see bad things, and they may have post-traumatic stress injury, right? But for some reason, they don't associate that with our first responders like firefighters, paramedics, police officers, dispatchers. But as an example, when you're in the military, first of all, a lot of people in the military, they don't go to combat, first mm-hmm. off. And second off, if you do go to combat or a hostile zone, it's for a defined period of time you know, usually six months, maybe a year, maybe you do that once, maybe two, three times in your career and that's it. But when you leave those known hostile areas, you know, whether you go back to your base that's overseas or stateside, you're now in a safe area. You know, the, the, the enemy and the threat is not all around. But as a law enforcement officer, we're literally in combat every single day when you think about it mm-hmm, for 20 mm-hmm. to 30 years, because every potential contact, whether that is a 911 call you're responding to, you know, a shoplifter in custody, a traffic stop, a ped stop. I mean, shoot, somebody just flagging you down for supposed help, or you're out getting coffee with one of your partners on your break or grabbing lunch. Somebody can walk in there and gun you down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't know if this person's wanted for murder, if they're a proly at large, a gangbanger. The point is, is that the level of heightened awareness for such an extended period of time, it's unparalleled. There's no other profession. There's no other career like it out there. And that has an effect. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we're exposed to hundreds and hundreds of traumatic incidents over our career. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the conservative estimate over a 20, 30 year career is like 500 critical incidents, right? Whereas the average person may have one or two in an entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even talking about our personal shit because we see the work stuff and we have our own personal stuff on top of that. And when I talk about, you know, traumatic incidents, that could be just even a natural death. I mean, I can't tell you, I've been to like over 50 to 100 just natural deaths, no crime, where people passed away in their house and you've got to go now deal with them, the body and deal with the family. But what about suicides or suicide attempts or overdoses or fatal car accidents or major injury car accidents, Mm -hmm. you know, child abuse, sexual abuse, stabbings, murders, domestic violence. We, people don't call 911 on their best day. They call us on the worst days of their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you, you make great points with that. Um, I think a lot of people forget 
the the human aspect i think they forget the um inherent danger of just leaving your house in uniform um just just by doing that um you're kind of setting yourself up just by having a police car in your front you know carport or driveway or in front of your house that is danger and it's a small thing right people would think that that's so minor like oh why and it means, you know, it, it, it keeps you on this constant state of vigilance. It keeps you always looking over your shoulder for something that you did or chose to do for the greater good. You know, you signed up to be a police officer because you wanted to help the community. That's, you know, that's why we all do it. Um, nobody that, that doesn't want to do that is going to, you know what I mean, sign up for it. Because, um, you know, when people put into work, law enforcement, they always ask, you know, why do you want to do this job? And everyone says to help people and people will laugh. I remember my first ride along, someone said, why do you want to be a cop? I said, I want to help people. And they go, we don't help people. I was like, stop, stop that jaded stuff. It's done. Right. So you sign up for this altruistic reason and you literally have a target on your back at all times, literally going to get coffee, everything you said, all those possible situations of getting ambushed shot whatever i could think in the last six months an officer has died by those ways you know and it's terrible the flag downs the the 911 hang-ups that they call back and go oh no no that was accidental sorry knowing that we're going to send a unit anyway and then ambush them i saw one probably two years ago now uh it was a it was a medical call it was a medical call about a baby not breathing and it, i think it happened in the phoenix area and the officer gets there and a guy comes to the door and he's like, hey, where is she at? Oh, she's over here. Who else is there? And anyway, the guy grabs, he has a gun. It was an ambush and, and ended up shooting the officer responding. That is such a different theater. It's such a different setup than combat in the military, like you described. And you're right. As you are living life as a police officer on and off duty, that's going to weigh on you. And I, I'm reading a book. And um, we were just talking before I press record about how I kind of have to do uh, reading in chunks just because my, my schedule is all over the place. But talking about over life, right? And this is this is to not law enforcement. Over life, you're going to put things in, quote unquote, a backpack, different bricks in your backpack that are going to weigh you down. That's just natural. Now you take your job, you take law enforcement. Now you're taking other people's bricks for, for no reason other than you want to help people. You're putting other people's bricks in your backpack. That's going to weigh you down even faster than the normal person. Absolutely. And the thing is, like you said, you know, we, I signed up to make a difference and I think I did help people. Um, but you know, you can't save the world. You can't help everybody. Mm -hmm. And you know, I didn't sign up to get killed, but we all know that that's a risk that we're willing to take on. It doesn't mean that we want that to happen or we signed up for it. It means that, you know what? We're the last line. We're the brave people that will go run towards danger when everybody else is running away, knowing damn well that we may not go back to our own families at night. And we leave every single day knowing that, that we may never see our wife, husband, or kids again. Right. And that's to help other people. But like you said, and now not only a target on just our backs, but on our family's mm-hmm. backs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a, there has to be, a, there has to be a change. There has to be a time where people realize how much they need us. And I think they're starting to see that because the crime rate is through the roof. You know, things are starting to happen. And on the flip side of that, officers cannot be as proactive as they were because every stop now 
of course it's a, a chance to be killed. We already knew that. But now it's also a chance to be fired, to be sued, to be investigated. And so now you're going to have police officers that are going to be like firefighters. And they're going to sit in the station. They're going to wait for the 911 call. And they're only going to go to the calls that they're sent to. They're not going to be out there being proactive, stopping the criminals from breaking into your cars, breaking into your house, and harming you. And that's where things need to change, is we need to get back to real policing, proactive policing, and stopping and preventing crime. Mm -hmm. Right. I I agree completely with you. Um, I think, you know, when you talk about law enforcement, right, just those words alone, none of those words means glorified report taker. It it, It doesn't mean that. It means go out there and enforce the law. If someone breaks the law, I'm going to enforce it. And you have so many officers that sit on their hands and half of me says, I get it. You know, I get that you don't want to get sued. You don't want to get shot. You don't want to anything, anything negative that could come to it. Something else like in the, in the wake of all the George Floyd stuff, and we're still dealing with it today. I still see the videos, even though I don't see it firsthand, you stop somebody that you would have stopped four years ago and it would have been no problem. Everybody, because the the media and the politicians have um, kind of made talking back and disrespect kind of this, this spectacle, everyone's got an attitude. Everyone's got to make it a, a big thing because you, you made a traffic stop. It's like it doesn't have to be, you know, you're making things way worse than it has to be. Like, sir, can you step out of the car? Like, th- that's that's like the the famous last words at this point. And it's like, no, it's it's like, I don't, all you have to do, sir, step out of the car. And that's it. Like that would end the the thing, you know, we'll do business and then we'll carry on one way or another. And so, so you have the people that are going to sit on their hands and not do that because of that. And I get that. But then the other part of me goes, but that's your job. Like, that's what you signed up to do is to go out there and, and enforce the law. To make sure, like, if I lived in this community and you're not patrolling my neighborhood and I get broken into, that's a problem. I have an issue. And I understand staffing, you're not going to be everywhere at all time. But if I find out that you've been just sitting at the station being a firefighter, I got a problem with that. And I think I think all of America would have a problem with that. Well, most of America, except for the ones that think that crime prevention is racist or, or something like that. I, I don't understand that mentality. Um, but all of this that we're discussing, like, I, I get the, the personal wear and tear. I get that, you know, people say it's not, they don't want to do it anymore. And to those people, I was like, I get it. Cause that's where I was. And that's why I switched to dispatch. But if you want to be there to help people to make a difference, then do that. Go help people and make a difference. Like that's where people have to kind of look in the mirror and be like, all right, what, what is worth it to me? What is my why? And how can I push through that? I agree with you. But to go along with that, we need agencies city governments, county governments, state governments, and federal governments to back our police officers. Because why on earth would any officer want to go out there if they know that their own agency head, their police chief or sheriff or mayor or governor is going to hang them out to dry when they did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And you you said this earlier, but most of these tragic incidents, and, and don't get me wrong, there's some clearly bad incidents out there, but it's a very, very small percentage. You know, in these incidents, if people would just comply, they wouldn't end that way. And the thing is, we have a process where there's a legal process, there's a court process where you can fight things. There's an IA process, a complaint process, you know, but for everyone to go home safely, 
you know, the bad person, the good citizen, the police officers. We need people to follow legal commands and legal orders. And I I think the problem, oh, sorry, just to cut you off real quick. I I just wanted to say like the problem is, is that the media and the politicians have made it sound or made the, made everyone think that a legal command, an IA process, the criminal justice system is corrupt. And it's like, no, (laughs) it's not. It's really not like an IA investigation is probably the most like we are far from the the days of like Serpico, right? Where things were corrupt and things were bad. Now, are there bad apples? Absolutely. But the, the judicial process, the checks and balance system is so tight. And, you know, you're going through a fine metal sieve at this point that it's like it's not corrupt. Stop listening to what the government and the politicians are telling you and we'll all be fine. Like all this civil unrest, all this distrust if the distrust was placed on the powers that be, as opposed to the the people that are just trying to make communities safer, I think this whole thing would be a little bit, this whole human experience would be just a little bit nicer. I couldn't agree with you more, you know, and, you know, another big misconception, and I'm going to blame this on the media and politicians, is that, you know, most police officers are never involved in a fatal shooting. Less than 1% of all police officers across the entire United States is ever involved in a fatal officer shooting. In fact, my own father, who worked in Richmond, California, which was one of the most dangerous cities in the entire nation, he was never personally, he never personally shot somebody. Mm -hmm. And he worked a full career. And so, but the media would have you think that officers are shooting people every day. And that's not the case. Right. I don't know what the actual uh, statistic is, but isn't it, it's something like 10% of the society commits 90% of the crimes and 90% of the, something like that. I mean, those are the real numbers, whatever, whatever the actual statistic is, that's the real number, not whatever they're trying to make it sound like, you know, cops are just out here shooting people left and right. That's not the case. And unfortunately with, our social media society and our instant gratification and sensationalism society, any bombastic headline that the news media can put out there, they're going to run with and it'll, you know, it just goes out of nowhere. And then you get people all over TikTok screaming, whatever the newest slogan is like, would you, would you just stop? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's frustrating to say the least. And so my hat goes off to all the brave men and women that are out there still fighting the front lines, protecting and serving, literally sacrificing it all mm-hmm. for complete strangers because those people, they're heroes. They, they absolutely are. They are. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd at heart, even not at heart, just flat out. And like Batman, right. That he's my biggest thing. And these officers that are out there right now, they are the dark Knight. Like they're not, you know, in a society that for the most, I mean, publicly would say that they don't want policing they're still out there doing it and obviously we're seeing the importance of it in in major cities and small cities and stuff like that but yeah absolutely and you know i realized that i couldn't do it anymore i i was checked out um so you know my hat's off to them we kind of kind of got off the rails here but i feel like this conversation was very important because i feel like we're kind of airing the feelings of a lot of the officers that are listening um so i just want to go back to your to your story so uh, you go through the trial, uh, four years. What What's the end result of that? Where do we go from there? So we ended up prevailing in the trial, but my life after that, I thought things were going to get better. I, I literally told myself the entire time, once this trial's over, things are going to get better. And they actually got much, much worse. And so that's where I started putting myself purposely 
in dangerous situations at work, hoping I died in the line of duty. And so the opposite of suicide by cop, I wanted suicide by bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I literally remember, and I talk about these in my book, but there's specific calls I went to where I put my tactics, officer safety aside, my, my judgment aside, hoping that I died. Mm -hmm. And by the grace of God, somehow I didn't. And it was another very tragic incident a couple months after my trial ended where my best friend, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was a 35 year reserve officer with my department. You know, he was going through some personal stuff and I knew he was having some issues, but I had no idea how bad it was. I had no idea they had post-traumatic stress injury from the Vietnam war because he never talked about mm -hmm. it. And when I was on duty, I was a day shift sergeant getting ready to go home. A suicide in progress comes out and it ends up being at his house. And so I just got to the trauma center when the ambulance was bringing him in. He was covered in blood, in and out of consciousness. He had slit both wrists, stabbed himself in the torso multiple mm. times, OD'd on a bunch of medications. And he literally, I had like 15, 30 seconds with him before they rushed him off to surgery. And I thought he was going to die. And I remember sitting there in the hospital waiting for hours for him to come out of surgery. And all I felt was this guilt and shame on why I didn't see the signs, why I didn't do something like this to stop him from trying to kill himself. And all I could think about was my young daughter at the time on how is she going to feel if I get killed? Mm -hmm. You know, what's going to be the ripple effect on her and her children. And so thank God my friend survived. He came out of surgery. And a month after that, on the anniversary of my shooting, I just had a breakdown in my car literally for like two hours, just bawling on the mess that my life had become. And I, I finally got the strength and courage to pull out my phone. I called the watch commander and I just said, look, I can't do this anymore. I need help. And that was the day that I started my recovery, mm. my journey of healing from post-traumatic stress injury. I feel like everyone is, you know, very conscious about suicide. Um, you know, you find out someone took their lives and you get obviously very emotional and you start asking why and, you know, oh, I didn't see the signs and everything. And I feel like people have a lot to say about suicide and a lot less to say about suicidal, right? Like when you're depressed, when you're dealing with grief, when you're dealing with post-traumatic stress, it's hard to either see the signs or it's hard to do anything with it from the outside looking in. And even from the inside looking out, right? It's like, you just kind of let it spiral and you kind of think you're smarter than what's going on. You're like, Oh, I can beat this. It's not so bad. I'm just in a bad mood. And then that bad mood just either gets progressively worse or just doesn't leave. And luckily for you and your daughter and your family, um, you know, you had that traumatic yet significant moment with your friend to open your eyes and, and, you know, see kind of the other side of it. What was the time frame between um, this incident with your friend and, and you calling and asking for help? What was the time gap between that? It was almost a month. Okay. So it was, he tried to kill himself like shortly after Thanksgiving in 2016. And the anniversary of my shooting was December 27th, 2016. And that was the day that I made the call. So, First off, it's and, – and I've talked about this a lot, but how, you know, strong you have to be to be someone who helps others and then say, 
I need help. Like that, on top of the stigma that goes with it and, you know, whatever, um, because a lot of all cops, right, we're, we're kind of built in this alpha, I don't need help from nobody, I am the help, I'm the calm, the chaos, you know, whatever the cliche word you want to hear is. Um, but then to go, maybe not, maybe I, I need to go help myself. And, and I've, I've used as many analogies as possible about taking care of yourself, uh, before you can help other people, but it's not easy. It's not, especially when you hit that level of despair, you know, that bottomed out going to calls, uh, in an unsafe manner to get yourself hurt or, you know, any other way you can kind of self-destruct or hurt yourself. It's, it's, it's not easy to, to do that. So first off my, my hat off to you. And, and I'm super thankful that you were able to make that call because so many people don't and they're, they don't feel capable of. And, you know, that must've been probably one of the hardest calls you ever had to make. Well, I'll be real with you. I, I was ashamed and embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I was ashamed and embarrassed when I made that phone call. And I was even ashamed and embarrassed for a year or two after that, when I went through my process until eventually I had to medically retire from post-traumatic stress. And I didn't tell anybody about what I was experiencing, about the things I went through, the things that happened to me, the effect on my relationships, on my health. But now that I'm out on the other side of it, I know 100% that that day pulling out my phone it was the most courageous and bravest thing I've ever done in my life. It was nothing I did in the military. It was nothing I did on the streets, including that shooting where we saved lives and I almost got killed. It was literally having the strength and courage to say, you know what? I don't care what anybody else thinks. I need to be here for my daughter and I'm going to take care of myself now for the first time. I'm out there taking care of everybody else every single day, Mm -hmm. but I need to take a step back and focus on myself right now. Yeah. And I can tell you from my personal experience, um, the day that I came to kind of came in, was kind of forced upon making that decision probably a lot quicker. So my story is I'd moved down to a new agency following buddy of mine got murdered in the line of duty. Another buddy took his life and, um, I had already relocated to a new agency just happened. Like I was making that move and those traumatic things happened in the meantime. And, uh, I'm in training to do whatever it was that day. And I get a text about my, my buddy that committed suicide, his, uh, his funeral arrangements. And I go and ask the training cadre. I was like, Hey, can I get Wednesday off so I can go to my buddy's funeral? And that obviously led to a conversation. And in that, I was asked if I still wanted to be a cop and I said, I don't know. Mind you, again, I had a very close buddy of mine just get killed in the line of duty. And then this one uh, took his own life following because of what had happened in that, in that officer involved shooting or the officer down. So I was, it was kind of forced into my hand and I almost, I'm still coming to terms with it, right? We're a year and a half into this new life of mine. And I'm still coming to terms with it. So the, you know, the shame and guilt that you're talking about, I definitely understand. It wasn't like I got fed up with the job and quit. It wasn't like, oh, I can't do this shit anymore. Blah, 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 and I quit. No, I, you know, and, and I, it was beaten to my head throughout the beginning of my career and whatever is like, oh, if you can't do this job, you're weak. That was kind of the, the mentality that I was given. Like, oh, 
you know, oh yeah, no, this job isn't for everybody. We need people at McDonald's. That's what was told to me. Right. And I was like, shit, it's either cop or McDonald's worker. There's no in between. So by me saying, I don't want to be a cop, I failed. I'm a coward, blah, blah, blah. I remember having that conversation going home and I was like, you know, I told the cadre that I, Hey, I needed to check with my girlfriend because I can't just quit my job. You know, I just moved down here to help start a family and everything. And, and I can't just quit my job like that. I need to obviously convert. She wasn't home. She had to go to work that night, but I called, you know, therapists and things like that. And they were all like, Hey, you have never been more courageous than having this conversation and thinking about it. And definitely didn't feel courageous. I didn't feel strong. I didn't feel proud of this thing. And it's still to this day, I've come more to terms with it, but it's a long process of making that decision to step away from the job for your own good. Again, it's one thing to to leave because, you know, you're just tired of this shit. You don't want to do it anymore in a, in a disgruntled kind of way, but to do it because you physically and mentally can't, that's a, very tough pill to swallow. It is. And like I said, for me, this wasn't a random job. This was a calling. It was a dream of mine since eight years old. And there was nothing else I could ever imagine myself doing. And, you know, my plan wasn't to leave the job. It was to get help Mm -hmm. and to get better. And initially my agency was very supportive and I got a lot of good resources. I got hooked up with a culturally competent therapist. I started going to first responder support meetings Um, I went through a week-long program called West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, which absolutely saved my life, and now I go back and volunteer. And about five months into my recovery, I had an administrator who started, like, saying, hey, do you know when you're going to be back to work? Like, I'm like, no, but I'm doing everything I can to get better, and I'm making progress. And eventually I realized after – and I won't go into detail because we don't have the time. I talk about this in my book in great detail, and it's – we could do a whole other podcast episode on Mm -hmm. this, but – I call it institutional betrayal or admin betrayal or moral injury. And this is where I realized that even though I was a go-getter, even though I sacrificed everything for 14 years for that police department, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. I was literally a number filling a position. And if I wasn't back like right now, they either wanted me back now or they didn't want me at all. And so, and and they're like, so there's really some horrific things that they did to me that really just kind of sealed the deal for me where I actually made the decision. I said, you know what? It's not that I want to leave this job because it's all I know. It's all I love. But I have to leave it because if I don't, I'm not going to be here anymore. Right. It's going to kill me. Right. And and what a what a stab in the back. Like you said, you, you put so everything, literally everything on the line for this organization. And while I understand from an organizational standpoint that they need to know, you know, they, they need to fill the slots, blah, blah, blah. But there's a human aspect to this. And we are not a corporation, you know, in charge of booking cruises, right? We're not McDonald's where we're serving orders. We are, like you said, constantly in battle. We are, but living and experiencing it daily um, for 20 to 30 years on most cases. So the fact that this the leader of your organization, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm keeping it broad because I've heard this from people in sheriff's offices, police offices, police departments, things like that. Like it's not, uh, it's, it's unfortunately all too common uh, to have this person, 
you know, be like, Hey, we got to get you going. Like what you doing? Uh, you know, it's, it's a slap in the face. Like I I'm giving you my entire life and not only that, but it's something I love doing. Um, but now I want to check on me and make sure I'm good and get me, you know, you're literally calling it recovery because that's what we do when we're injured, right? We recover from injuries. If you broke your leg, right. And you had a, however long process to recover from that broken leg. Um, they wouldn't go to your physical therapist and be like, Hey, like, can we get shit going on? We gotta, we gotta fill his spot. No, you know, you'd have enough time to get through because when you get back on the road, uh, you'd be expected to walk, stand, run all these climb fences, all these things that a police officer is meant to do. The same thing goes with mental injuries too. And the problem is the stigma attached to it is people don't accept that they're starting to come around to it, but they don't accept that mental injuries are just as severe, if not more severe than physical injuries. The worst part is that mental injuries, obviously you can't touch, you can't see them. Um, you know, it's all quote unquote in your head, right? It's something you're feeling and experiencing as opposed to a broken leg where obviously you can see it and feel it and other people can see it. And so you're in recovery and he's trying to rush you or he or she is trying to rush you along. And it's like, are you kidding me? And that's where it is a slap in the face. And that's where I'm like, when you leave this job, whether you leave at the end of your 20 year, five year, whatever it might be, they're not going to raise your Jersey to the rafters. They're not going to, you know, put a training wing with your name on it. It's just not, you're a cog in the machine. And that that's where I get on people like, take care of yourself. Fuck this place. Take your days off. Enjoy your family time. Like work overtime. Cause you want to not because you feel like they need you to like, unless obviously mandates. I mean, unfortunately you can't really do anything with that, but you need to be your best, your advocate, not there. Don't wait for them to call for you. Cause that ain't ever going to happen. You need to take care of you. Absolutely. But you know, this is why I advocate for post-traumatic stress injury versus disorder, because that single word disorder, mm-hmm. it prevents people from asking for help because it's such a negative word where you think it's something you're stuck with. You don't have a choice about it. You can't get better. And the fact is that you actually can see post-traumatic stress injury, but it requires, you know, imaging, whether that's MRIs or brain scans. And it's a, it's a medical fact that exposures, especially repeated exposure to trauma, causes a physical change and a chemical change to the human brain. And so, you know, how many cops and first responders have bum knees, bad backs, you know, messed up shoulders. And the fact is, you know, there's a plan usually like initially you see the doctor, you know, they give you some Motrin, you go to physical therapy. If that doesn't work, now you're doing injections, physical therapy, maybe you got to do surgery, rehab, right? Well, with post-traumatic stress, it is an injury and you can get better. And there's things that you can do. And I did a series of a whole bunch of different things over a period of years because there's not one magic thing that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm now living proof I'm on the other side of it. I'm living a whole new life and I am proof that you can get better. And that's where we need to change this whole mentality and this whole stigma. You know, we need to treat it. If we're going to take care of an officer with a bad back, why the hell aren't we going to take care of them if they've got a mental injury? Mm -hmm. It's the same Mm -hmm. damn thing and it's caused by the job. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's the big thing caused by the job, because if I was working at Starbucks, I would not have any of the problems that I have today. You know what I mean? Like the, the, whatever, whatever it might be, whatever the symptom might be, I wouldn't have it right. The job literally put me in line 
to experience these things and for better or worse, right? Like maybe I'm a better person for it. Maybe I'm not, I don't know, but point being the job did this right. And, and, and us being in the job did this. So it is incumbent on our, on our agencies and our legislation uh, in Florida. Florida's starting to be pretty progressive with it. I don't know about around the country, but it's incumbent on them to look at this and understand that, you know, we always talk about um, our vets and, and them taking their lives. Police officers take their lives at a higher rate than getting killed in line of duty. Nobody is talking about that loud enough or publicly enough to do anything about it. And I think that's where it needs to change. Like we are more likely to lose a police officer to themselves than to a bad guy. And that is terrifying. That's terrible. And then if you take the retirement numbers on top of that, the amount of police officers that either kill themselves post-retirement or just die from medical issues that were not treated properly during their career we are not doing anything to ca- to take care of our law enforcement officers. Or if we are, it's definitely not enough. Well, that's why it's exactly what I do. That's why I speak across the country. That's why I wrote this book, Relentless Courage with Dr. Springer, because you already said it, but suicide is the number one killer for all first responders. And the thing is, this year alone, right now, according to Blue Help, as of today, I think we're at 38 or 39 for this year alone. And those numbers are greatly underreported. I'd say they're probably three to four times mm-hmm. underreported. Mm-hmm. Last year, we had 160 just law enforcement suicides. And if you go back to 2016, since Blue Help started tracking these numbers, it's well over 1,200 reported just law enforcement suicides since 2016. And, and here's the ironic thing. As cops... We spend hundreds, if not thousands of hours training on firearms, defensive tactics, emergency driving, arrest control you know, procedures. We train to fight the bad guy on the street, but yet the number one enemy, the number one killer is ourselves. And how much time do we spend training or educating ourselves on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I, I, it's, it's become a big passion of mine, obviously, losing people to suicide. And, and not only that, but just looking in the abyss myself, you know, looking at it and, and trying to figure out where I am in this, in this grand scheme, it, it needs to change. It needs to change. And I feel like it's changing, but it's changing too slowly. Um, hopefully as, as you and I talk and as you go do your thing and, and speak around the country and other people start speaking louder and louder, it's going to become more and more prevalent that, Hey, we need to do something about this industry-wide. Um, and that goes for all first responders, even, even uh, healthcare professionals and on all the helping industries, really it's, it just needs to, it needs to change, you know? And I think what I hope we'll get there sooner rather than later, but you know, it's, it's a process. And unfortunately it's taking a lot of the old school mentality out of the game to do so. There's a, there's a Sergeant, let me rephrase that because I don't want to do that. There's someone that I've I've experienced who, you know, is in that old school mindset. And, you know, you say, hey, uh, can you check on your guys for any post-traumatic stress injury or anything like that? Or can you keep a track of them, you know, see if they need help, we need to follow up on them or whatever. And they go, when did this job become so pussyfied? When, you know, when, when can't we just be tough anymore? And you're like, are you, this is still happening? That's where like I get I'm so passionate about mental health and and 
recovery and things like that. And then I hear shit like that. And I'm like, holy, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Like this, this is going nowhere fast because of people like this, we need to really drain the swamp, so to speak, and, and bring in some fresh minds, some new blood, because so many of these people, unless it, you know, it's just, it's a foreign concept to them to take care of your people. Absolutely. I mean, we need leaders that are going to do the right thing. We need leaders who understand it, who are vulnerable themselves, because if you have a supervisor at any level or leader at any level, if they're not willing to be vulnerable themselves, how on earth is anybody going to open up to them? Because they're not going to trust them. They're not going to feel comfortable with it. And we need people to be real, to be themselves. You know, we don't have to make this a big ordeal. It's just normalizing it and having discussions as things happen. It doesn't have to be the end of the world, but let's acknowledge it. Let's address the humanity, you know, the things that we had to see and let's move on. But if you don't do that, it becomes a huge deal. And oftentimes it costs lives. Yeah. And that's the saddest part of it. Uh, Mike, Michael, I think we could probably talk for another few hours about this, especially since you got me going a little bit, but uh, we, that will be a conversation for another time. If people want to get a copy of your book, if they want to reach out to you and talk about things, um, how do they do it? So the book is on Amazon. There's hard copy, soft copy. It's also on Kindle. And we actually just recorded the audible in our own voices. It's going to be freaking phenomenal. It's not out yet, but I anticipate within the next month, It'll be out on Audible. Um, I'm on pretty much every social media platform. Just type in my name, put Sergeant first. So Sergeant Michael Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Parler. I mean, TikTok, you name it. I'm on all of them. So just send me a message there. I check them daily and I'll definitely get back to you. And if it's about speaking specifically, then send me a message on LinkedIn. Perfect. Perfect. Michael, this was a great conversation. I appreciate you sharing your story and I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you, brother. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Everyone listen, stay tuned. I'll wrap this up. Uh, Michael, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. People help people. The best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. It's a quote by Marcus Aurelius. Hurt defined is to suffer pain or grief. Another definition is to be in need. Hurt is a subjective and relative term. What hurts one person may not hurt another. Furthermore, how much something hurts is relative. If you pinch your finger in a kitchen drawer, it may feel completely different than if you did it to me, or a whole lot different than if it happened to a child. Meanwhile, if you were to run a mile, it would feel totally different than if I were to run that same mile. Another perspective on pain is, have you ever seen those people that go do something crazy, like a BMX biker or professional skateboarder? They wipe out, they twist their ankle, their arm folds the wrong way, and they bounce up laughing so hard, and you start wondering if they're superhuman and they may not even feel pain. You start to wonder if they're impervious to pain. But you know that later they're going to feel that pain. The truth is that no one is a Superman. No one can take in hurt and pain and not be affected. The question is, what do we do with that pain? And what happens when we are hurt? Well, anyone knows that after any sort of significant injury, you develop some sort of scar tissue. 
A scar is an area of tissue that replaces normal skin following that injury. It's tougher than normal skin. Scars are also permanent. I have a scar on the back of my neck from a mole my parents had me remove when I was in middle school. I have scars up and down my legs from basketball and riding on my Razor scooter when I was a kid. I have small scars on my stomach from when I was getting my gallbladder removed in my 20s. Every once in a while, I'll get a haircut or I'll fall and I'll hit one of those scars and the pain is so intense. While I wouldn't go as far as to say it hurts as much as the original incident, it's still pretty remarkable pain. Now, if my barber runs over my scar with the clippers, I'll probably be pretty pissed off. But that's because he can see it and he should know better than to put the clippers against the scar. The idea of pain, injury, and scars, and the pain that comes from those scars, makes sense in the physical sense. But goes all the way to mental wellness as well. Things happen to us. The longer you're alive, the more that you experience. And the more likely you're going to start picking up those scars. These scars go by a more proper term as trauma. Now, you could be a loner and keep to yourself and never be injured mentally and never get any trauma, but that's highly unlikely. For the purposes of the rest of this little thing I'm talking about, I'm going to start referring to trauma as a mental injury, not a disorder or anything like that, because we all know that the word trauma or traumatic incident carries around unnecessary weight and pain and stigma. And I believe in the realm of self-care and resiliency, we need to treat trauma, exposure, and response as injury treatment. Because those of you listening are forced to deal with situations that will injure you, it's not an option. We don't only deal with our own mental injuries, but we also must deal with those that we encounter through work's mental injuries too. And the thing is, over time, these encounters and experience will continue to build. Now, when someone hits one of our mental scars, it's easy to lash out and get pissed like I would if my barber was to hit my neck scar with the clippers. But the thing is, people may not know the mental scars we have. They won't know what hurts, and they won't know what makes it hurt. And it's not their fault, especially if we never tell them about it, if they never knew that they were there. Furthermore, just because the pain has happened to us doesn't mean that we get to inflict the same pain onto others currently, previously, or prospectively in our lives. Now, we can talk about triggers later if you want, but I want to talk more about just this infliction of pain on others and by others and our response to that pain. Something important to understand is what I said in the very beginning is this. Pain and hurt is subjective. It's relative. What hurts you may not hurt me, and the severity to which it hurts may be completely different. So let me paint into a picture that many law enforcement officers in here may be far too familiar with. Field training. Remember day one of your field training, maybe a couple days before that, that you were so excited to suit up, get behind the wheel of a police car, and go get bad guys? It was probably the most optimistic you ever have been in for this career, and probably the last day of that optimism as well. You get to the station about a half hour before roll call because, as all rookies know, that being on time is late, and if you're early, you're on time. Your uniform was pressed, collar brass was shined, you have a fresh notepad in your shirt pocket, new pens, all forms and paperwork all ready for your tour of duty. Then walks in your field training officer, or as he will become to be known as your field terrorizing officer. He tells you to get your shit and get in the car. And he proceeds to berate you, commenting negatively on every little thing that you could possibly be doing wrong. Like you've been on this job for 30 years and you should know better. 
You don't drive properly. You don't talk to people correctly. You're timid. These are all things that he will write on your daily observation reports. He doesn't take the time to actually train you. Just goes ahead and documents a laundry list of your failures, shortcomings, and then has the balls to tell you that you lack self-confidence. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I wonder why. Every day you drive home miserably wondering that, is this job even for you? You spend your days off studying department policy and state law, hoping that the next day you'll be able to prove him wrong. This goes on and on. Eventually you get out of his car. Hopefully you were able to write the ship. You find true mentors and teachers that guide you along the way, and you pass field training. You get out on your own and become a half-decent cop. Eventually you're going to be tapped to join the ranks of a field training officer. You get your own trainee, and suddenly you're at a decision-making point. Are you going to be like that first guy? Or are you going to berate your trainees and make them feel less than adequate? Are you going to spend time ridiculing them? After all, it's fair, right? It was done to you, so why shouldn't you do it to others? Or are you going to be the one that breaks that cycle? Are you going to be a true leader and care for the trainee and see that they pass because that's what you lacked when you needed it the most? This idea is what gave me the idea of the saying, hurt people help people. The story I laid out can be applied to any aspect of life, personal or professional. How often do we hear about the person that was abused as a child and ends up abusing their children? Or the person that was raised by alcoholics or drug addicts turns out to be one as well. All those things are morally wrong, and I'm not here to sit and tell you that they're fine or that, you know, oh, they had a hard time, whatever like that. We need to address them as they are. They are all trauma responses. They are all these mental injury scars, and they are what is familiar to us at the time. They are scars that we have from hurt that has been done to us. If we want to talk about the job, how many of us have been through a significant experience and we're told, suck it up, kid, man up, drink up. How many times have we had supervisors or bosses make you feel less than, so you get promoted and decide to do more of the same? Or, and this is the whole point of what I'm saying here, you can take the high road and decide to be what you needed instead. Hurt people can and should help people. Why? Because we know what it's like. We have been through the dirt. We've been hurt. We have the scars, but we made it through the pain. And it should be our goal to do everything in our power to help those to never feel that pain that we felt because we know how it feels. Now, I don't speak to you today from atop a pedestal. I speak to you as a guy who was in the trenches, a guy that to this day must debate in himself as if he wants to and is capable of being the change he wants to see in the world. And it's damn hard. Now, regardless of the title or chevrons or bars or stars on your uniform, by doing this, by making decisions to hurt people or to help people, you are choosing a leadership position. Now, that's a talk I gave with reps for responders a few weeks ago, probably a month or so again. Michael and I didn't really get a chance to talk about organizational betrayal, but we'll talk to him sometime in season four. But I want to leave you with that in your brain because I know a lot of you guys are probably listening now in your patrol cars or maybe on your car on your way to or from work, and you're faced with this every single day. I don't think there's a police department in America that doesn't have somebody in a higher ranking position that treats their people like garbage. It's the nature of the beast, unfortunately, and I feel like you could take that and apply it to any line of work. It's just how it is. But that doesn't have to be you. You can make the change you want to see to the people around you. And again, you don't have to be a leader. You can just be someone in a squad room. You can be 
Joe Officer and do the exact same thing. And you can make that change. And guarantee you people will remember more of the good than the bad. That being said, as of June 6, 2023, there have been 56 first responder suicides. I'm guaranteeing you each of those people felt like there was no one that they could talk to, they could turn to. You can be that person. You just have to realize the weight of your position in the world. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can dial 988 or call one of the many organizations that I've mentioned in the beginning of the show for assistance. You are not alone. We all fight together. Thanks for checking out today's episode. You can check us out next week where we will have Chief Deputy Michael Thomas on the show. And uh, only a few more episodes left of this season. So uh, we've got some good ones coming. Until then, guys, take care of each other. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. 10-8. Out. Can't talk to anyone I-